Hello, and welcome to the DadCast. I'm your host, Chris Hale, and during each episode, I will read aloud a short story, poem, or academic, or scholarly article. The Idea of a Town, Chapter 2, City and Sight. The Corinian oath I described earlier seems a reflection, an analog of the great oaths and laws inscribed on the copper column which stood at the center of Plato's Atlantis. It is an index of an aspect of the problem which modern commentators have, on the whole, preferred to ignore. Plato and Aristotle are usually quoted in support of a common-sense view of ancient planning. In the politics, for instance, Aristotle makes quite explicit recommendations for a site. The land upon which a city is to be sited should be sloping, that we must just hope to find, but we should keep four considerations in mind. First, and most essential, the situation must be a healthy one. A slope facing east, with the winds blowing from the direction of sunrise, gives a healthy site, rather better than the lee side of the north though this gives good weather. Next, it should be well situated for carrying out all its civil and military activities, and so on. This passage is chosen by Vitruvius, who also seems familiar with Aristotle's authority, Hippocrates. Though Vitruvius is more circumstantial than the former and less than the latter. The choice of a healthy site must come first, he says. Such a site will be high, neither misty nor frosty, the climate neither too hot nor too cold, but temperate. temperate. Further, there should be no no marshes in the neighborhood. Again, if the town is on the coast and exposed either to the south or the west, it will not be healthy. In founding towns, in short, beware of districts where hot winds can blow on the inhabitants, and so on. Although such common-sense notions were current enough in Vitruvius' time, they were not often applied in practice. In the 5th century BC, when Hippocrates formulated them, they must have seemed eccentric as well as revolutionary. They seemed to go right against the Pythian advice to incipient colonists over the past four centuries. Agrintium, for instance, a town founded about 580 BC by colonists from Gela, faced directly southwest onto the Mediterranean and was protected by a rocky escarpment, the Athenian rock along all its northern limit. Sometime in antiquity, a a breach was made through the escarpment to admit the north wind. Popular tradition has it that it was carried out on the advice of Empedocles about a century and a half after the foundation of the town, which had, however, been founded on a site which would not have satisfied the Hippocratean conditions at all. The same is true of many towns on the southern coast of Sicily, the Tyrrhenian seaboard of Italy, and so on. Rome itself was founded on the Palatine Hill, it is true, but overlooking the notorious malaria marsh on the valley of the Forum. On the point of orientation, even the theorists are not altogether consistent. Aristotle had himself, in another book, found a site facing only south acceptable. And Xenophon, quoting Socrates, actually recommends it. Well, there seems, therefore, to have been general agreement about how important it was that the great, greatest care should be taken to select a very temperate climate for the site of the city, since healthiness is the first requisite, 
yet there seemed to be a great deal of disagreement among authorities as to the right way to achieve this. Consider another matter, the relation of the street layout to the direction of the winds. Vitruvius again, following his Greek preceptors, warns planners that if the streets run straight in the direction of the winds, then their constant blasts rush in and sweep the streets with great violence. The lines of houses must therefore be directed away from the quarters from which the wind blows, so that they may strike against the angles of the blocks and their force be broken up and dispersed. To the planner, Vitruvius described a 16-rayed tablet arrangement for orienting the main streets at an oblique angle in the strongest winds. Writing 300 years after Vitruvius, Orobasius, the editor and reviewer of Galen, recommends the exact opposite. When streets are parallel in a town, some in length and some in breadth, the first running from east to west, the others from south to north, so that they pierce the town through length and breadth without any obstacles, and none of the winds meets any building which might obstruct its course, the town will be well aired and sunlit, healthy and clear. For all the winds, Boreas and Notus, Irius and Zephyrus, which are the dominant and most regular winds, sweep through the streets without meeting obstacles and pass freely without causing any disturbance. This kind of plan also makes a town a good sun trap because at sunrise and sunset, the sun lights up the streets, which run east-west, and at midday, those that run north-south. Such snatches of medieval opinion, as we have, therefore, contradict each other directly. Clearly, there is not enough material to allow any generalized account of town planning theory in this respect, nor does archaeology provide the evidence on which theory might be related to practice. There are, in the matter of orientation, plenty of orthogonal plans of all periods, and in all geographical locations, which seem to conform to the Hippocratean rule. Miletus, for instance, Naples, Pompeii, Salinas, Oriasta. There are even late imperial foundations of this kind, such as Trier, Avranches, Turin, Zara, or Zadar, Carnutum. On the other hand, there seems to be an equal number of orthogonal plans which might accord with Orobasius's formula, some very ancient. Mars, Marzabato, Capua, Laodicea, Prien, Pestium, and again, imperial ones, Cologne, Silchester, parts of Constantinople, Lucca. It is impossible to conclude on the basis of what is known at present whether any systematic relationship was established by the Greeks or the Romans between town orientation and the principal winds and similar factors. There is no record of any device for doing this. It may well be that if all the material available were adequately tabulated, some indication of a system or several conflicting systems would emerge. But on the information available, I must conclude that the advice of theorists about the choice of a site is a pious gloss without any very radical undertones. Of course, an ideal site would have to be fine and healthy, as Vitruvius says, but the choice then, when explicable in rational terms, was often made for quite different reasons than hygiene, for commercial and military reasons, for instance. The injunctions of the theorists do not seem to have been followed. In the legend of Archius and Nicellus, we actually have the account of an osist referring wealth to health, preferring wealth to health. The theories 
read more like post-facto rationalizations than direct precept. Modern writers on town planning who look for the progressive development of a sensible planning method in antiquity tend to emphasize out of proportion the very little evidence which is available, which is mostly in the form of incidental remarks. They tend to neglect, however, the obscure, magical, and religious rituals which, with most of our contemporaries, they find unattractive and unedifying as well as irrelevant. Roland Martin, for instance, in the first chapter of his fine book on Greek towns, quotes this passage about the ideal city from the laws of Plato. Some places are subject to strange and fatal influences by reason of diverse winds and violent heat, some by reason of waters, or again from the character of that subsistence which the earth supplies them, which not only affects the bodies of men for good or evil, but produces similar results in them. There Martin cuts short his quotation, but Plato, who was considering the moral and psychological influences of physical environment, goes on to say, in all such qualities, those places excel in which there is a divine inspiration and in which the gods have their appointed lots and are propitious to the dwellers of them. It is the goodwill of the divine powers which is transmitted in the favorable physical conditions. Its assurance might have been more easily obtained if the recent readings of Platonic urbanism are taken correctly by establishing harmony between the city and the structure of the created universe rather than by any other means. Even in historical times, the founder of a town would therefore prefer to trust himself blindly to the unpredictable, if approachable, divine powers and follow their dark hints. We have no notice of a founder who sought a site by working out the theoretical advantages of various choices as they are set out by theories, by theorists. Herodotus reports an exceptional case. The Spartan Dorius thought that he could found a town on a site he fancied without worrying about divine sanction or performing the usual rites, though apparently even he had consulted some private diviner. Two years after its foundation, his town was wrecked by an alliance of Libyans and Carthaginians, although it had been the best site in all Africa. For his second attempt, although again fortified by private revelation, Dorius preferred to consult the oracle. The prophecy was fulfilled again in a failure, the death of Darius and the dispersal of a second colony founded this time in western Sicily. The second failure is not really disconcerting. The myth also recalled in any case the premature fulfillment of the prophecy in an incidental victor Darius won on his way, so that his ultimate failure was attributable to his not having obeyed the oracle to the letter. Had the second foundation, however, been an unqualified success, there would not have been a more or less relevant conclusion to draw. But I am not here concerned with how successful the Pythia had been in forecasting the exact future of a colony. On the contrary, what interests me is why the sanction of the oracle was required by a founder, how it related to his own status with his fellow citizens, and how this fitted into the general pattern of town foundation. What the city founder thought he was doing and its mythical rightness, or what his followers saw him do, is more interesting in this context than his historical success or failure. It is the idea of the town which concerns me here. Ostensible motives are as valid, or more valid, for this consideration as any arguments that would nowadays be thought convincing by a new town finance committee. The choice of the site 
says Fustel de Coulange, a serious matter on which the whole fate of the people depended, was always left to the decision of the gods. The historical part which the Delphic Oracle played in the foundation of the colonies has been set out in detail by two authorities I have already cited frequently. Nor does it seem as if the innumerable myths about the intervention of divinity in town foundations, through the agency of a sacrificial animal, for instance, can be reduced to simple etiological mystification. This intervention was clearly an integral part of the foundation proceedings and was always incorporated into the notion apparatus of the inhabitants about their home. The animal may have been a common sacrificial animal such as a goat, a cow, a bird, such as a falcon or a crow, or yet again a creature appertaining to the earth such as a snake, or a swarm of bees, or even aquatic beasts such as a dolphin might play this role. In later times, the even more complex methods of divination were employed, as when animals or sacrifices and pieces of the sacrificial meat were exposed for birds of prey. The site was fixed where the first bird dropped its find. Pius Aeneas himself followed a pregnant sow to a place where it farrowed and founded Albalonga on the spot, which would have been quite unacceptable on health grounds. In founding Rome, Romulus also followed this practice. Had Romulus been a Greek, says Fustel de Golange, he would have consulted the Delphic Oracle. Had he been a Semite, he might have followed some sacred animal like the wolf or the woodpecker. Being a Latin, a neighbor of the Etruscans, and an initiate in the science of augury, he asked the gods to reveal their will through the flight of birds. On the other hand, two of the authors who tell the story add a further detail, with Italiate overtones. They say that Romulus and Remus agreed to found the city near the place where they had been picked up by the she-wolf. The exact spot where this occurred was said to have been the site of the Lupercal Shrine. Here the two brothers separated and each went on a hilltop to watch the auspicious birds. This was the Inogratio. The Inogratio was a complex rite. It consisted of a prayer, a naming of signs, and a description of the augur's field of view. The augur watched for the signs, and when they appeared, he determined their exact significance. The specific terms for the culminating acts were uh, conregio, conspicio, and cortumio. This is how the augur carried out his duties. For the conregio, the augur drew a diagram on the ground with his curved wand, his litius. Livy was an, gives an account of this part of the rite in his description of the inauguration of Numa as king of Rome. The augur with his head veiled took a seat on Numa's left, holding in his hand a crooked and knotless staff called Lichius. He prayed to the gods and fixed the regions from east to west, saying that the southern parts were to the right and the northern to the left. This fixing of the regions and the naming of landmarks such as trees which bounded them, while he pointed to them with his staff, constituted the conregio. The conspicio seemed to have been parallel to the conregio. The direction of the augur's eyes followed his gesture, and by taking in the whole view, town and country beyond, he contemplated and united the four different templa into one great templum by sight and gesture. As Livy puts it, he fixed the guiding marks in his mind as far as his eyes could see before him. Marks he determined, though in some cases they were probably traditional, after he had drawn his diagram. 
And then he spoke the covenant, the legium dexit, that is. He announced the matter about which he was to decide and what incidents were to be taken as potents. Portents. Livy continues, Having passed his staff from right hand to the left, the augur put his right hand on Numa's head and prayed, Father Jupiter, if it is right that this Numa Popilius, whose head I touch, should be king of Rome, then let your signs be clear and unmistakable between the boundaries I have made. Then he announced what kind of signs he wished to obtain. These were sent, Numa duly proclaimed king, and all went down from the high place where the auspices were taken. The contest between Romulus and Remus was decided by the appearance of flying vultures. Romulus won because he saw more of them, though tradition is not unanimous on this point. In any case, when the portentous animals appeared, the augur had to assess the event by the rules of his science. This was Cortumio, and with it, the whole ceremony of contemplatio was finished. Contemplatio was so-called after the diagram the augur drew, his templum, a solemn word, Norden says, and a contentious one for the scholars. So let me turn to an ancient author who was already proven very helpful, Varro. In discussing words denoting place, he begins with templum and quotes a line of Aeneas about Romulus. There'll be one whom you shall rise to the bright temples of the sky. He goes on to say, templum is used in three ways, with reference to nature, to divination, and to resemblance, with reference to nature in the sky, to divination on the ground, and to resemblance underground. He derives the word from Turia, to look, gaze, stare, observe. By modern etymologists tend to think of templum in connection with the Greek word temenos, a sacred enclosure, in turn derived from temno, I cut, hew, wound. The evidence has been taken to suggest that the word even applies a fixed hut of sawn, cut wooden planks for the taking of augury. But this would take me away from the argument, and in any case, there clearly is an analogy here. Temenos is a piece of land defined by boundaries and devoted to a particular purpose, a shrine. And Vero tells us when he comes to discuss the terrestrial templum that it was a place set out according to certain definitive forms of words for the taking of auspices or for augury. But as Vero implies later in the same passage, the word had wider and more general applications. A templum could be any space set apart for definite functions of state and religion. So, for instance, a senatus gulus consultum was not valid unless it had been passed inside a templum and between sunrise and sunset. As a general's tent in a Roman camp was called agoraculum, after the augur's tent, which he set up on the templum sometimes, so the camp itself could be regarded as a templum. It was certainly as was any properly constructed town and even certain rural tracts, libertatum a fatum, freed of evil influence and consecrated. The normal templum, as Varro says, ought to have a continuous fence and not more than one entrance. Now the town, the herbs, had three entrances ritually, but it was certainly an agar afatus, a place that had been consecrated and shared many characteristics with the templum. Without wishing to give the matter too much weight, it is worth emphasizing the importance of this cutting off. This insistence, said Kurt Latte, on 
a purifying enclosure of lands is in any case characteristic of Roman religious thought. But the town shared other characteristics with the Templum, besides that of being ritually enclosed. The most important of these was the conricitio, the division into four parts, like those of the diagram the Augur drew, and the bringing of the four divisions together again by formula and gesture. In a place which had an unobstructed view of the neighborhood, the auger drew a shape divided into four parts, forward and backward, left and right, divided by lines drawn from east to west, north to south. I have deliberately kept the description rather clumsy instead of saying that the circle was divided into four by lines running north, south, east, west, because in the context of divination, the words left and right, forward and backward, are technical terms, which leads to another problem. What shape exactly was it the auger drew and divided? It certainly had an outline. All the directions agree on that. Avaro provided the essential clue by implication. He considered the heavenly templum first. This was circular and quartered. Many ancient peoples, including the Romans, of course, believed that the earth was circular and that the sky formed a vault or dome over it. So much has been written about the matter that I need say no more about it here. The association of the heavenly templum and its dividing lines raises yet another unresolved problem, that of the association between the dividing lines of the templum and the main orientations. This has never been adequately examined. Vero firmly sets the augur at the north point of his diagram facing south. Frontinus, when applying the same terminology to surveying and claiming to use the system of the haraspices, turns Vero's scheme at 90 degrees, so that the surveyor and the haraspics faced west. While they agree on the terminology for the lines of augury and surveying, cardo and decanimus, they therefore apply the terms for the quarters left and right, hither and beyond, quite differently. Unfortunately, the system sets even more complex problems, as is shown by Livy's circumstantial account of the inaugurations of King Numa. Explicitly following Romulus' example at the city founding, Numa ordered that the bird omens be consulted about him, an augur whose service on this occasion was afterwards recognized by the grant of a permanent state priesthood, escorted Numa to the citadel, on the capital presumably, where the augurculum was later situated, where he took his seat on a stone with his face to the south. And so Livy goes on to describe the ceremony which I analyzed earlier. I refer to it again here as a type of augural procedure, which, in spite of the analysis, remains as hermetic as the science of the augurs, which was secret. But something has come to light about the nature of the auguriculum. Those of certain Roman cities have been examined. Like Roman towns, so these auguriculum did not have a fixed orientation. Indeed, it seems as if the dividing lines of the augur's templum were, like those of the surveyor's guidelines later, rather haphazardly related to the cardinal points. And yet it would seem that, certainly by imperial times, the terms left, right, forward, backward had passed into ordinary speech as synonymous with the cardinal points. How the augur drew the diagram, what position he occupied in relation to it, is not made absolutely explicit by the texts. Sometimes he drew it by gesturing with his staff in the air. Servius explicitly says that it was forbidden to augurs to do this with the hand alone, but had to be done with the litus. 
At other times, he certainly seems to have drawn it on the ground. It may well be that both operations were essential. Its relation to the cardinal points was essential, notionally at least, to surveyors at any rate, if not the augurs. The front piece of one of the oldest surveying treatises makes this quite clear. It is a starry circle representing the sky, which is quartered as the augur quartered his diagrammatic circle. The size of the diagram did not have any relation to its power since its working was analogical. It worked ex parvo in magnum, the divisions and the limits of the skies being transferred from the little diagram which he had drawn onto the landscape the augur saw in his conspicio. I take it that the various formulae, which as that of Vero and that of the Ugovine tables, are a good record, almost a prompt copy of what the augur said, and cannot be used as evidence about what sort of diagram the augur drew, as some scholars have wanted to use them. The landmarks which the various formulae named are sometimes wide apart. To maintain that each time the augural operation was repeated and it was daily, it involved the augur in drawing lines several hundred yards long with his stave does not make sense. The purpose of drawing the diagram was to set the general order of the sky in a particular place, with the augur at the heart of it. This was accomplished when the great temple of the sky was first condensed into the ideal form of the augur's diagram and then projected onto the tract of land before him by the ritual formula. That is why we are never told what shape the earthly templum was to take, though Varro does describe it as a place set aside for augury or the taking of auspices, limited by an incantation which was not the same for every place, and in this context records the particular one used in the Capitoline Augura Calum. Elsewhere, he reports that every templum should have an enclosure broken only at one point, when the templum was fixed in this permanent way with a fence or a wall, it was called a templum minus, and this last term came to be applied in an exclusive way, without the minus qualification, to what we now call temples. But the augural templum could be set down anywhere and did not necessarily need physical enclosure. It might, in certain places, have had visible and permanent physical bounds, but its real boundaries were not fixed by them. The templum was bounded by the words of incantation, by verba concepta, which drew a magical net around the landmarks the augur named. It is this naming, and not any drawing on the ground with a staff, which actually fixed the boundaries of the templum. These ceremonies and ordinances were not used for special purposes only, but were the common Roman way of dealing with matters of location. The military camp, for instance, was related to the augural templum. It also had permanent boundaries and was carefully oriented, so Polybius explained, from a white flagpole which stood in the center of the praetorium, the camp staff headquarters. Near the flagpole was the Auguraculum, the general's tent. From its door, the general read the omens, and to the left stood the tribune from which he addressed his soldiers after he had ascertained the will of the gods. Pliny records a primitive method of orientation. Writing about orientation, not for divining, but for the rural, common-sense kind of forecasting, he recommends that you should cast your own shadow at the sixth hour, midday, facing south, then turn to face north, so as to see the shadow. Through the center of it, make a furrow with a hoe, or strew a line 20 foot long, say, with ash. Halfway along it, that is at the tenth foot, draw a little circle, which is called the navel, the umbilicus. 
The direction of the apex of the shadow will be that of the north wind. Through the middle of it, draw another line which will run from the direction of the uh, equinoctial sunrise to that of the equinoctial sunset. A boundary cutting the field in this direction is called decaminus. Two further oblique lines must be drawn through this intersection, all running through this same navel, all equal with equal distance between them. Pliny finds it necessary to apologize for this method as being fit only for technical simpletons and suggests that more expert people might have this diagram, essential for determining wind directions, registered permanently on some kind of a tablet. Vitruvius describes the construction of such a wind rose in great detail. Vitruvius's rose is more detailed than Pliny's, having 16 divisions instead of 8. These 16 compartments of the winds relate, of course, to the 16 divisions of the sky in Etruscan divination. Further analogies, such as that to the 16 names of Osiris, would involve me in too elaborate a speculation. Pliny's method of orientation was country wisdom. Even Vitruvius describes a much more accurate way, which was used by surveyors and planners, and his near-contemporary, the surveyor Higinimus, condemns Pliny's primitive method as misleading and recommends the standard surveyor's way as the only one ensuring accuracy, which it does. This is how Roman surveyors worked. A scytherum, an upright bronze rod, was set in the center of a circle, probably on a marble tablet. The shadow of the rod was then observed, and the two points at which its tip touched the circumference of the circle before and after midday were marked and joined. The cord was bisected, and the line joining the center point of the cord to the rod was the cardo, while the cord itself was the decaminus. Having established the main axis, or else accepted the orientation of some notable feature of the place, such as a main road like the Via Emilia running through the site, the surveyor operated with an instrument called groma or nomen. The Scytherum was also called a nomen. And this had led to some confusion. This was a composite instrument, a sheet metal cross with plumb lines on each arm of the cross was set and set horizontally and eccentrically on a wooden frame, so that the cross could be sighted directly over a tablet with a cross drawn on it. And one of the main lines of which was made to coincide with the line previously selected by the surveyor. The lines were then established by inspection. The stella on its nomen was, the surveyor, was to the surveyor what the templum was to the augur, an essence of his method. In fact, a stella of bronze appears to have been fixed to the thresholds of Templa Minora, and it may even be that the augural litius also had a small stella fixed to it. The auspices were taken, either that day and on that site, or if the gods are not agreeable, on another, better site and more favorable day, a sacrifice was offered. The entrails, particularly the liver and perhaps the intestines of the animal sacrifice, were then opened and inspected for further omens. This was done by a special kind of diviner, the heraspex, or liver diviner. Like the reading of auspices, heruspication was traditionally an Etruscan skill and remained so well into the Christian era. Inspecting sacrificial entrails for omens was a universal practice. The specific method of divining by the liver seems to have originated in summer, 
and spread to the Hittites and beyond. In the context of primitive religion, this form of divining appears obvious. The liver is a large and delicate organ, which at any time contains a sixth of the stuff of life, the body's blood. So the liver was that was thought of as the seat of life, and it followed that in any animal consecrated to the gods, and whose very smallest movement was anxiously observed, the liver, as the focus of its being, would in a particular way become a mirror of the world at the moment of sacrifice. It is worth noting that sheep in Mesopotamia, they were the most common sacrificial animal there, were prone to a disease which resulted in a strong marking of the liver. And the suggestion has been advanced that a system of correspondences was developed between the markings and external events. At some stage, the lore was codified, giving the practice all the semblance, semblance of a trade with schools and licensed diviners, case histories, and disputes about interpretation. There was nothing inspirational about it at all. Although several documents relating to it have survived, we know very little of the actual rules and procedure of Mesopotamian liver divination, and even less of the Etruscan system. The most important of the Etruscan documents to survive is the bronze model of a liver, now the museum at Piacenza. Most scholars have thought that this model was used for instruction in a divining school, some others that it was only an amulet. Whatever purpose the object served, round the edge of it is more populated surface are 16 compartments containing names which correspond fairly closely to the names of the 16 Etruscan gods of the divinatory sky recorded by Martianus Capella. The augur's divisions of the sky correspond to the haruspic's divisions of the liver, both referring to an idea, a model of the world, so that it is not surprising to find a haruspic's doubling duties as thunder diviner. Besides the liver, another internal organ was, was important in augury, the intestines. In augury, the intestines were called palace of the intestines or just great palace, the akadine ekalu, like the Hebrew haikal, means both palace and temple. Palace of the intestines was also the name of the underworld in Mesopotamia of the region of the demon Hambaba, the intestine man. Together, the intestines and the liver seem to represent the universe in Mesopotamian divination. What is more, the terms of Mesopotamian divination, mountain, river, station, passage, fort, main gate, and so on, add up to something like the description of a landscape. There seems to have been some sort of direct link between the details of a landscape, such as the surroundings of a besieged town, and parts of the sacrificial victim's entrails. In Italy, entrail divination in general, though practiced, was much less important than it had been in Mesopotamia. The great Etruscan skill concentrated on liver divination. The founder of the town had already consulted the flight of birds, the movement of stray animals, thunder perhaps, the motion of the clouds, to find out if the sight and day were propitious. Why then was divination by the liver so important? It remained an essential part of many ceremonies when auguration had fallen into desuetude. Vitruvius is most insistent that the examination of livers should not be neglected. Our ancestors, ancestors, he said, when they built a town or a military 
post sacrificed some of the cattle that fed on the site and examined the livers. If the livers of the first victims were dark or abnormal, the sac- they sacrificed others to see whether the peculiarities were due to disease or to their food. They never began building walls in a given place unless they had made several such examinations. Even without corroborating evidence, Vitruvius's rationalistic statement would have been sufficient to establish the practice of haruspication at the foundations of towns, though his reasons for it may be may not have appealed to earlier founders or their diviners. The divinatory procedure was lengthy and tedious. Unfavorable omens could be cancelled by a more favorable configuration of entrails or markings of the liver. Sometime the entrails were dumb and the sacrifice had to be be repeated because of that alone. In any case, they could occupy several days. And the results were not taken simply as being the God's yes or no answer to a specific question, but could give precise indication of actions. The presence of these sacrifices in the ritual of town founding is not in itself significant since they were one of the most certain ways of assuring the participants of an action that the gods sanctioned what they were doing. But the topographical nature of the divinatory language seems to indicate that the nature of the inquiry regarded the sites before them. I do not think that I am stretching the evidence when I suggest that this form of divination may have been practiced to determine some of the features of the layout on the site. The terminology of haruspication might have suggested the line of the wall and the actual layout of some of the principal public buildings of the town. We have no guide to tell us how the ancients laid out the public buildings and temples in relation to the plan of the town. In the case of a Roman military camp, we know at least that a more or less level site was always selected. But even here, where a strict specification was given for the layout, This was more a topological indication than an actual layout, even in the form in which it survives in late imperial writings. In a town, there were, as a rule, many irregularities of the ground and changes of level to be taken into account, and such irregularities were very difficult for Roman surveyors to chart. Even the larger scale maps which survive from antiquity, like the Foma Urbis Rumae, do not register changes of level. It seems possible, therefore, that when an irregular site had to be laid out, this was not done in accordance with a previously established drawing, but carried out on the actual ground and may have been related in some systematic way to the reading of the victim's entrails. There is no direct evidence to support my suggestion, but in other circumstances, divination was directly applied to the lie of the land. The Roman augur, Actius Navius, for instance, first showed his skill when looking for an extra-large cluster of vines in his vineyard to sacrifice to Jupiter. He stood facing south and divided his vineyard into four parts. By observing birds, he rejected three of the quarters and located his offering in the fourth. This is the only clear instance of the augural templum being used for divination, referring to exact sighting. In the various accounts of Constantine's foundation of Constantinople, there are stories of his divinely inspired enlargement of the city boundary, which had been fixed previously. It is not unnatural, therefore, to assume that divination was applied topographically, but there is little hope of ever discovering at what measure the details of an urban foundation were worked out in consultation with diviners. 
The time had now come to prepare the auspicated site for new occupants. According to one writer, the first step was to light brushwood fires at various points of the site for all the future citizens of the new town to leap over so as to clear themselves of all faults and impurities. It may be that this account merely reflected the custom of leaping over brushwood fires on the Feast of Pales, the birthday of Rome. Next, a hole, a round hole according to some, was dug in a virgin soil or solid rock, and into it were cast first fruit, or unspecified and enigmatic good things, and or earth from the settler's home country. This hole was called mundus. Like templum, it is a contentious word. In the context of ritual, it seems to have signified a hole in the ground leading to a vaulted, possible, uh, chamber, or two such chambers, one above the other, and was consecrated to infernal gods. It crops up in different guises in Roman religious practice. One appears to have been dug at the foundation of Rome. But even about this, the ancient authors disagree. Some say that Romulus's Mundus was, at, was on the Palatine, others on the Comitium, in the Forum. We know that in some way, Mundus was a shrine of the Manes, the appropriated soul of the dead. It was open three times a year, and the days on which it was open were dangerous and all sorts of public business, including the joining of battle, were forbidden. On those days, the spirits of the dead came among the living. There was also a Mundus devoted to Ceres, goddess of the crops, which even had a special priesthood. The cult of the dead, the infernal powers, and the deities of vegetation are closely connected, of course, and I take it that, in general, the Mundus was, among other things, the mouth of the underworld. That is why attempts to locate the Mundus of Rome and to discount the evidence of one group of ancient writers must fail. The soil of Rome, as one scholar has remarked, was riddled with hellmouths. Though we may never know where Romulus actually dug his hole, it is worth noting that it seems to have been connected in some way with the Decusius of the Cardo a Decuminus Maximi, whether it was dug at the actual crossing of the lines or to the north or west of them cannot be determined. After whatever was to be deposited was put in, it was covered by a stone and an altar was set upon or beside it and a fire lit on the altar perhaps by rubbing fire sticks. This fire was the focus of the town. At this point, the city may also have received its name. The only ancient writer who describes the naming ceremony as part of the foundation is the Byzantine historian John Lydus, who says, taking the priestly trumpet, which the Romans called litus in their language, after the word light or prayer, he, Romulus, pronounced the name of the town. A town had three names, one secret, one priestly, and one public. The secret is Amor, the priestly, Flor, or Florence, and that is why this, uh, why this day was commemorated by the Feast of Floralia. The public is Roma. Although Lydus is often suspect, there can be little doubt of the fact that Rome had a secret name, for Pliny records the execution of a magistrate who had revealed it. Although many scholars and grammarians have speculated about it, and in spite of the fatal indiscretion of Valerius Serranus, the name remains secret. Lydus' information is isolated. The assumption has, however, been made recently that it was the name of an androgynous deity. So far, Lydus appears 
to have been correct. And this deity, who may have appeared openly in the religious life of the town, in other guises, also acted as fortune and as genius of the town which it protected. At this stage in the ceremonies, the town may have said to have been born. The gods have demonstrated their benevolence towards the community. The site had been purified and marked out. The augur had taken supernatural stock of it. The community had taken possession of the ground by the mixing of the earth from the site with that from the settlers' homes. Perhaps it was at this point that the surveyors took over the site and marked out the streets and the building plots. It may be, however, that they were working while other parts of the ritual were going on, or they may have started only when the last part of the ritual had finished. Their intrusion here raises the whole vexed issue of the origins of orthogonal planning, which would have been impossible without recourse to some form of surveying technique. Although it is not at all evident whether surveyors operated within or outside the foundation ritual, yet their discipline, as Roman writers on surveying claimed, had its origin in the divine mysteries, as did the Etruscan rite. In any case, when Roman surveyors appeared on the fresh site with their elaborate and mysterious-looking rig of marble and bronze, they must have looked as solemn and impressive as the augurs. Their method of operation, even if it were performed without any ritual, prayers, sacrifices, etc., which is very unlikely, must have had something of the character of a mystery. Even nowadays, surveyors at their businesses look as if they were performing a ceremony. And of course, like modern surveyors, the ancient ones also had to start from some form of datum. This apparently was the decusius of the Cardo Maximus and of the decaminus Maximus, the umbilicus of the place. There the surveyor's principal instrument, the groma, was auspiciously set. The surveyor's terminology alone would have been enough to connect their operations with the Etruscan rite. They also appealed to another authority worth mentioning, Mago the Phoenician. Mago was a common Phoenician name, but this particular Mago seems to be the same one as the author of a treatise on agriculture, whom Varro and Columella mentioned as their most important predecessor. In the corpus Agramin Sorum, however, he appears as a shadowy figure, sharing an opinion of the sanctity of boundaries with Bogosia. He seems to reappear in that curious document, the Phoenician history of Philo of Byblos, as the co-founder of the settlements and of agriculture. These rather scarce fragments do not really help to determine the Roman debt to Carthage in the matter of surveying, but they suggest that some of such debt existed. Perhaps when some clear ideas gained of Phoenicians and Carthaginian planning and surveying, this debt might be established and the place of the Etruscan in this connection re-examined. When the surveyors had finished their work, the land which they had measured out was distributed by the drawing of lots. The exact procedure is uncertain, but it is clear the surveyor handed over the land to the settler by leading him to it. The ownership of the land of the land lots was recorded by the surveyors on bronze maps, one of which was kept by the community, another deposited in the tabularium in Rome. While this procedure seems to have been standard in imperial times, it had solid republican precedent and must have gone back to a pre Gratian antiquity at least. The maps of the surveyors, the bronze formae, 
which were the ultimate authority in all disputes about land, show that the agrimensores was were concerned with the laws of land tenure as with surveying proper. It is therefore being suggested that the references to the Etruscan rite in the writings of the agrimensores are a latter imposition of rather fancy cosmic notions on a pedestrian, though useful, bit of technology. This would be entirely contrary to all we know about Roman thinking. I would suggest that the rather modest allusion to the cosmic implications of surveying in the agrimensores are a rationalized and weakened survival of the Romano-Etruscan belief in the sacredness of land titles and boundaries. This is a very heavily underlined for us as by the terrible penalties primitive Roman law imposed on boundary breakers, as well as the cult of the god Terminus with its repeated blood sacrifices. Perhaps a further point is worth noting. No other civilization, and most civilizations have very strict regulations about the inviolability of boundaries, had practiced, as the Romans did during the late Republic and the Empire, the imposition of a constant uniform pattern on the towns, on the countryside, and also on their military establishments with almost obsessional persistence. There is about this complex of laws of property and the techniques of surveying with its rather indistinct religious echoes, something rigid and inexorably something unimaginative, as if it were atrophied after a long development. It does not suggest to me a cosmic graft on a pre-existing technique, but on the contrary, a move away from a complex of religious, scientific, and technical opinions and practices. It was this kind of process in other scientific disciplines that Simone Weil noted when she wrote, only such a mystical conception of geometry as that of Pythagoras could have generated the degree of attention necessary in the first days of that science. Anyone will agree that astronomy came from astrology and chemistry from alchemy, but this succession is interpreted as a progress, although it involves lowering in the degree of attention. Astrology and alchemy, which are a transcendent, are the contemplation of eternal truth through the symbols provided by the movement of the stars and the combinations of substances. Astronomy and chemistry are degraded forms of these sciences. Astrology and alchemy become magic, are even lower degradations. There is no perfect attention except religious attention. This may be too grand, grandiloquent a statement for my present subject of surveying. The converse, however, is put more succinctly and more acceptably by Claude Levi-Strauss in another context. Discussing the uselessness of many of the animals or plants which may be found as totems in primitive societies, he points out that they were chosen not because they were good to eat, but because they were good to think. Astrology, alchemy, and totemic system, all these may be an explanation of the world's workings, as may be the amalgam of divination and orientation, which perform this most important part of the Etruscans and the Romans. There is here, too, a direct link to a notion which exercised the Romans powerfully, the striving to delimit boundaries sharply. I quote Kurt Latte again. 
is in any case characteristic of Roman religious thought. And the most important part of the whole founding ceremony to which I now come was the cutting of the sulcus primigenius, the initial furrow. This was performed by the founder with a bronze plow to which Cato reports according to Servius, a white ox and cow were yoked, the ox on the outside of the boundary, the cow on the inside. If, therefore, the various accounts of Romulus's route may be believed, then the procession must have gone anti-clockwise starting on the southwestern corner of the site. The founder then gathered from with his followers at the agreed spot, having set his plow aslant so that all the earth would fall inside the furrow, his head covered by the edge of his toga, which was wound tightly round him, he plowed round the site of the city. In any earth, if any earth happened to fall outside the furrow, the founder's followers would pick it up and throw it inside the city boundary. When he came to the place in the boundary where the gates were to open, there were three of these according to the Etruscan rite. He took the plow out of the ground and carried it over the span of the gate. According to ancient writers, it is this carrying, portare, which provides the root of porta, a gate. Also, the walls which followed the line of clods cut by the founder's plows were sacred, while the gates were subject to civil jurisdiction. The new town was now fully constituted. New inhabitants had taken possession of the site and expelled such previous ghostly inhabitants as were unfriendly. They had given it a name and invoked a protecting deity, lit the fire on its hearth, and set out the boundaries. All this was done publicly. If any of the ceremony was secret, it was the deliberately mysterious element, such as the deliberations of the augur in his tent or the uttering of the town's secret name. From the first moment of drawing the templum, the future inhabitants took part in the rite, if only as witnesses. Was the city to be called Roma or Remora? All were agog to know which of the two shall rule. They watched as when the council raised his hand to start the race, the crowd's eager eyes fixed on the mouth of the trap, through whose showy door the chariot will rush. So the people waited and wondered in fear, whose shall be the victory and the great reign? This is how Aeneas records the inauguration in his annals, and how it was probably carried out in his day. The city was constituted publicly, its order was accepted and acted out by the whole people in the rites of foundation, and reiterated for them through festivals and the accounts of analysts. It could be inspected daily on those monuments of the town which recalled a legendary past, so that citizens never forgot the connection between the topography of their city and the rite by which its order had first been established. Much of what I have said is in conflict with the conventional account of Roman towns and their planning. The convention is that the Roman town was more formal version of the military camp. It is quite common to read of the Roman, Roman surveyors laying out the military camp orthogonally and measuring out the land in rectangular fields from the axis of the camp. To some extent, this is due to the excellent accounts of Roman surveying given by Polybius in his account of Roman military organization. There is also the impression created by the word castrum, anglicized as Chester, a camp, which has insinuated itself into modern place names, Chester, 
Sirenchester, Winchester, Manchester, Silchester, and so on. But the convention inverts the truth. The Roman town was not a formalized and a large camp. On the contrary, the Roman military camp was a diagrammatic evocation of the city of Rome, an anamesis of Imperium. The Romans did not treat the setting up of the camp as a makeshift for a night's sleep. It was part of the daily military routine that no army was permitted to settle down for the night without setting up camp ceremonially. The first act was to plant the general's vexillium at a chosen point. It was from the vexillium that the praetorium was paced out. On the border of the praetorium and the principal road, a groma was stood to ensure that the streets were laid out at right angles. The line between the vexillum and the groma gave the surveyor the main axes of the camp. The groma in the camp, as on the site of a new town, was auspiciously placed. It gave the direction of the cardo maximus of the camp and led to the Porta Pretoria, the principal of the four camp gates. According to one author, this gate always faced the enemy, while according to Polybius and the surveyors, it was oriented according to the cardinal directions. Perhaps both practices were followed. To the right of the Praetorium was the Agarucalum, the place where the commander sacrificed and omens were read. So the essential decisions about the future of the campaign were taken according to the will of the gods. Opposite, on the left side, stood the tribune from which the commander addressed his troops after the decision had been made and the augurs consulted. The whole of the Praetorium came to be called Agarucalum, in fact. And in this setting of what seems to be a trivial and irrelevant piece of nonsense at the center of military discipline and decisions on high strategy does reemphasize the absolutely essential character of divination in Roman life. The Senator Appius Claudius Crassus, as quoted by Livy, puts it in a sentence, It is by auspices, in peace as in war, within as abroad, that things are governed. Everyone knows this. Consequently, the struggle of the plebeians for power and for military power in particular focused on the right of the plebeian magistrates to divinatory skills and powers. In all probability, the rights for setting up camp were considerably younger than those for founding cities. The rules Polybius sets out are already elaborate, but cut and dried. They were practiced well into the imperial period allowing for changes due to growth and development of organization, changes in the structure of command, and so on. The origin of the camp layout is obscure. Frontinus writes that it was devised by Pyrrhus of Epirus, and that the Romans were so impressed by the camp he abandoned outside Beneventum, then still called Malaventum in 275 BC, that they adapted it to their use. Plutarch, on the other hand, tells of Pyrrhus admiring the order, the appointment of the watches, their method, and the general form of their encampment as he inspects the Roman camp across the river Cirrus, now Sino. Before the Battle of Heraclea, the Pyrrhic victory, in 280 BC, Livy repeats the same story, but about the camp of Sulpicus Galba on the Athicus during the Macedonian campaign, of 200 BC against Philip V. 
Polybius, the earliest and most explicit of the ancient writers on the subject, says nothing about the Greek origins of the Roman camp. Livy, who so often follows him, may be suggesting the very opposite in the passage which I quoted. Inevitably, archaeological material bearing on the matter is rather meager. However, round the ruins of Numantia, the Celto-Iberian town and castle, there were found extensive remains of the seven camps Scipio Emilianus erected around the town for the blockade. For all their irregularities, they conformed to the description of Polybius, who himself witnessed the siege. It may well be, therefore, that even at the time of Pyrrhus's Tarentine campaign, there were already Roman camps to be admired, as Plutarch suggests. The close correspondence of town and camp foundation inclines me against Frontinus' account. In any case, during the early Iron Age in Italy, when Rome was founded, the Roman army probably had little call to set up camp. Its enemies were within a day's reach. The declaration of war was made for the Roman state by a special priest charged with certain official and legal declaration, the Pater Patratus, who proclaimed the grievances of the Roman people and declared a war by throwing a spear of dogwood hardened in the fire or an iron-tipped lance into the enemy territory. When the lines had moved beyond the daily reach of the Romans, a field by the Temple of Bologna near the Circus Flaminius was nominated a token territory, Campus Hostilis, for the purpose of this ceremony. As the town was constituted ritually, it had a more than physical existence, not only in the obvious sense to which the defeated Athenian general uh, Nicatius appealed, encouraging his soldiers before Syracuse, with the ringing phrase about the transcendence of Athena, which I quoted at the beginning of the book, the town had a hearty and devious quality of existence as ancient custom recognized, in that a victorious war leader was usually not satisfied with burning a town or otherwise raising it, he also had to unmake the town ritually, to de-establish it. Servius mentions the custom of the ancients, which decreed that as a new town was founded by the use of a plow, so it should also be destroyed by the same rite by which it was founded. Little is known of the over-end or undertones of the great destruction of classical legend, that of Troy, as the Odyssey and the Aeneid do not deal with this particular episode, although the Trojan horse has a disturbing symbolic connotations. There is, too, a curious allusion and the collects to Achilles dragging the body of Hector after his chariot three times around the city walls, and with Hector's body the victor purified Troy. Much more is recorded about the destruction of Carthage, the historical antitype of the fall of Troy. Scipio followed the general Roman custom in in assuring his victory. During the siege, he vowed his army and the town, summoning its tutelary gods and goddesses. If there is a god, if there is a goddess. By an incantation, Carmen, to pass over to the side of the Roman people and receive their worship. The augur had to make sure through Harispication that the summons had been heard before the final assault could take place. After the town had been taken and destroyed, its site had to be plowed, or rather unplowed. Perhaps the plow was drawn clockwise over the ruins. While the founder's plow had been drawn anti-clockwise around the city site. The legal implication of such a ceremony was evidently that. 
If revenue was due to a city and the city had been plowed over, this city had no further legal existence. So Carthage ceased to exist, and its revenues were treated as those of someone dead. The ceremony was, of course, not limited to the Roman world. Abimelech, for instance, when he captured Shechem, slew the people that were therein and beat down the city and sowed it with salt, much as Scipio had cursed Carthage with sterility. Mantinea is a curious example from the Greek world. When the town was captured by the Spartans in 418 BC, it was not destroyed, but disciocized, the opposite of sinicized, into four constituent villages, as she had been in the old days. Returning to the Roman world, the ceremony was familiar enough to make a commonplace poetic reference. Horace went so far as to allude to it casually when disposing of a cross young woman. Rage, he says, has been the cause for which high cities were blotted out and an insolent army drew a plow over the place where the walls had stood. The end. As with many of these longer readings, please take time to go back and review the text so you can see any associated footnotes or images or illustrations. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.